This morning at Psalm 95, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let's look together at this psalm. It should be printed on the screen behind me. <clears throat> this will be my last Sunday with you for the remainder of the year. I'm going to be on vacation, and so I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas now, in case I don't see many of you. Um, it's been a good year. Thank you for giving me some time off, and uh, I hope to see you. But I also hope not to see you. I mean that in a good way. It's been a really good year for Jenny and me being here. So thank you. Um, we love being here and uh, wish you all a wonderful Christmas. And again, are thankful for the time that you've given us to be away. Thank you. Psalm 95. This is God's word. That means what I'm about to read, you can bank your entire life on. It is really life-changing and true. Hear this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's hardly a, another psalm that I can think of that starts on such a joyous high note and ends on such a solemn note. Let's pray and ask God's help to understand it. Our Father, we gather here because we need you. We need you to speak to us. We need you to take the truth and penetrate our minds and our hearts and get to the center of our being. We need you to bring the truth to bear on our lives and to help us understand who we are in light of what you say and in light of what you have done for us in Christ. So Holy Spirit, we call upon you, we beg you, pour the love of the Father into our hearts. Bring us to a sense of who we are that we might bring glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this and with great confidence. We pray this for the glory of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. About 170 years ago, there was a French political thinker named Alexis de Tocqueville. And after visiting and making a trip to America, he ended up making this famous statement. Perhaps you have heard this before. This was one of his statements he made about Americans. He said, quote, Each citizen is habitually engaged in contemplation of a very 
puny object himself. That was his assessment of looking at America 170 years ago. That we are preoccupied with looking at and focusing on ourselves. This psalm really gives us the only remedy for that. This psalm talks to us all about worship. You see, we're all worshipers. The problem is that most of the time, the object of our worship is ourselves. We're preoccupied with ourselves. And God wants us to continue to worship. We're always worshiping. But he wants us to focus our worship on the right object. And that's him. So in order to understand worship, he's given us Psalm 95 and many other places. But this morning we're looking at Psalm 95 and looking at worship. And there are two components of worship that I want to show you from this text. There's two ways that God comes to us in worship. There's two things that we see every time we gather together to worship. And it's found here in Psalm 95. I've given them to you in the bulletin, but I'm actually going to reverse the order. I want you to see that worshiping God is actually entrusting ourselves to Him. And in worship, God is giving Himself to us. We're going to start with we are supposed to entrust ourselves to God in worship. That's actually what's happening every time that we come together. Look at how the psalm begins. Isn't it wonderful? There's this upbeat tone. Listen to all of this. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Don't you love the corporate aspect of it? That it's not just let me sing, but it's let us. There's a corporate aspect of what we're doing. There's a community involved when we gather together as God's people. We are coming together to sing to the Lord. Verse 1 says we're making a joyful noise. Verse 2, we're coming into His presence with thanksgiving. We're also making a joyful noise. It's repeated there in verse 2. Even songs of praise. You know, we've looked at this many times before. There are all kinds of psalms. And we've looked at many times before how we come into God's presence with all kinds of different moods. You know, sometimes you come into God's presence and you might be silent You might be contemplative. You might just be thinking about your life or really affected with something that has happened this past week or that will happen this week. And there's a note of just being solemn when you come into God's presence. And that's perfectly legitimate. Sometimes you can come into God's presence. Sometimes you come here on Sunday. Sometimes you gather for worship. And you might be sad. That also is appropriate. Sometimes you might come and you might be confused. Maybe even a little bit angry. All of that is legitimate as well. We've looked at all kinds of psalms that have displayed and and declared to us that there are different moods that we come into God's presence with. It can be sad. It can be joyful. It can be angry, frustrated, confused. You might even come into God's worship sometimes crying out, even though you may not be saying anything with your mouth. But inside, you're crying out. You know that you need something. Well, this psalm reminds us that what is also part of the mix when we gather to worship is there can be a note of thanksgiving and rejoicing. That we can come into God's presence with an exuberant joy. That might be a little bit hard for some of us sometimes, being Presbyterians. 
We seem to find a diff- we seem to find it difficult to do this. Or maybe we express our joy in different ways. Or maybe our exuberance is more internal. Or maybe it's deeper. I don't know. But it's okay for us to be exuberant. And that's not saying that the joy that we have should be the exact same joy that's on the ball field. It's not the same either. There should be something deep. There should be something joyful about us. And it's okay to be exuberant. It really is. We're not hurting God's feelings to do that. We at times perhaps err on the side of being concerned about reverence and awe. But sometimes we perhaps forget about and struggle with trying to be joyful or outwardly expressive of that joy in God's presence. The psalmist here encourages us to come into his presence with joy and thanksgiving. That means that you can come and you can be excited about coming to worship. It's not just something that you have to check the box. That's not it at all. It's that part of giving yourself to God and entrusting yourself to God is actually entrusting all that you are to Him, all of your emotions, no matter what they are. It's coming to Him with sadness or, as the psalmist says here, with great joy, with a thankful heart. But you see, it's not just emotional. Look at verse 6. As a matter of fact, it's connected. There's a connection here between joy and praising and thankfulness and verse 6 that says, Come, let us worship and bow down. And even adds here, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. You see, the, true, the, 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 the joy that we have and the thanksgiving that we had, it, it, it's connected to something. It's connecting to bowing down before God. It's connected with kneeling. See, anybody can whip you up into some type of weird thanks or even make you feel guilty for something. But we should come into God's presence with thanks and with joy and with exuberance because we are here to bow down before God. We are here to kneel before God. When we come to worship, we actually are supposed to yield ourselves to God. That's what bowing down and kneeling convey. Would it be wrong if we got on our knees and prayed? Of course not. Would it be wrong if we lied face down on the floor and worshiped God? Not necessarily at all. But there's something deeper going on there. It's the bowing down, the the physical kneeling or the physical laying down is, is descriptive of a heart that's yielding to God. You see, we are coming into his presence to submit ourselves to God. We are coming into his presence because we are humbling ourselves before God. It's important. And you see, if we're coming to bend, if we're coming to yield, if we're coming to humble ourselves, that means that we expect God to say things that maybe we don't agree with. It means that when we come into God's presence, we expect God to say things in his word that will contradict what we think, maybe even contradict the way that we want to live our lives. You see, yielding always implies that we're yielding to something. Submitting implies that we're setting ourselves underneath someone, something that we might not always agree with. When we gather in God's presence, we should expect that God should contradict us. You see, 
if we have a God, if we have a God that always agrees with everything that we think and everything that we feel and everything that we want to do, then we don't have the God of the Bible. What we actually have is an idol. If the object of your worship, if your view of God is that, th- is that your God never disagrees with you, never contradicts you, never says anything that you disagree with, you probably have a God of your own making. And more than likely, you, that might just express that you're worshiping yourself. Because the God of the universe is going to say things that contradicts us. Isn't this true in our relationships? If you just spend time with people that always agree with you and never contradict you, you don't really have a friend. You just have a fan or a follower. You don't really have someone who's really engaged in your life. You're just surrounding people who will approve you as you are, no matter what that is. That's not a real friend. There are times late at night that I watch this show on TV, can't remember what station it is, it's called The Prophet. And there's a successful businessman who travels all over the country, and what he does is he goes to small business owners because he desires not only to invest in them with his own money, but he also desires to help them and advise them. In some way, they have asked him for help. And he obliges, and he wants to get involved, and he even is willing to give of his own resources. Now, what's fascinating is that as as he advises them and as he meets with the owners of the business, what's so fascinating is that he advises them, he really advises them on everything, whether it's advertising or marketing or packaging or um, maybe even the product itself, Maybe how the business is organized or structured, chain of command, all that sort of thing, job descriptions. He goes through it all. But I realized one time that more than half of the show, more than half of the show is him figuring out how to contradict the owners. They think that they've got it all together, and yet their business is failing. They think that everything is wonderful until you actually just scratch below the surface a little bit and then you find out that there are all kinds of personal conflict. You find out there are all kinds of product issues and what they're trying to sell. And over half the show is spent with him figuring out ways and new ways to contradict the owners of the business. And I've also realized that the vast majority of the time The owners of the particular business, they cannot get out of the way of themselves. They can't hear it. The majority of the time, they can't listen to what this man is saying to them. What they really want is for this guy to come in from the outside, tell them that everything is going great, and then write them a blank check. They just want to keep doing what they're doing. Sometimes they say they want to change, but that's not even all the time. And most of the time that they say that they want to change, they really don't. You see, that's often how we come to God. We want Him to never contradict us. 
We want him to affirm everything about us and just to tell us that everything is okay. And just keep going. Keep going as you are. No problems. Just keep going. But you see, if worship is entrusting ourselves to God, no matter what our emotional state, worship is that emotional state is connected to our bowing and kneeling, our submitting to God, which means whenever we come to worship God, we ought to expect Him to contradict us in the way that our best friends do it, except better. We ought to expect that God can say things to us that we don't want to hear and didn't think that we needed to hear. We ought to expect that God might challenge us in ways that we didn't think could happen. We ought to expect that God points out things in our lives. And we also ought to expect to hear encouragement. That God really is for us. We've looked at that as well over the past few weeks. You see, we should entrust ourselves to God, all that we are emotionally, in yielding to Him. All that is to say this. In entrusting ourselves to God, every time we come to worship, what we're saying is this. I belong to you. That's really what we're functionally saying every time we gather for worship. We are affirming that we belong to God. All that we are emotionally, all that we are in our hearts, all that we are in our minds, all that we are with our wills, we are bowing down, submitting to God. We belong to Him. See, He doesn't belong to us. But there are all kinds of reasons why we should entrust ourselves to God. All kinds of reasons. And this psalm gives us a number of them. You see, the command to entrust ourselves to God is not just a clinical, cold command at all. The number one reason why we ought to entrust ourselves to God is because He is giving Himself to us. Every week. Every week He is giving Himself to you and me. Look how the psalm works this out. Look at verse 3. God is giving himself to us. Think about this. Verse 3, it says, For the Lord our God is a great God. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. You see, we ought to entrust ourselves to God because of who he is. God is the great creator. He is the great God. He is the great king. He's created all that you see, the mountains, the seas. He also sustains them. God doesn't just set the world in motion and then back away. He is involved in the details of life. The world is handcrafted. And not only that, the world is preserved by his powerful care. The world is handcrafted and even handheld, I think one man said. He truly is, verse 1, the rock of our salvation. He is the anchor of our souls. He is the bedrock on which we must build the rest of our lives. But it's not that we just entrust ourselves to him because he's a creator and sustainer. The psalmist says it's more than the fact that God is just God. There's a personal component to it. Look at verse 7. God is our God. We are the people of 
his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. We entrust ourselves to God for who he is, but who he is is very, very personal. He's our God. He is committed to us constantly. We don't praise God in the abstract. We praise God because he's our God. We are his sheep. We are in his pasture. He leads us. He relates to us as a shepherd relates to sheep, not as an answering machine to a robot. The infinite God relates to us tenderly and relationally. He cares about us. Wherever we go, wherever we are, He is there. No matter what we're doing, He is there. His hand is upon us. He is guiding. He is leading. He is involved. And if that isn't enough, look how the psalm begins. It begins by his invitation to come. Look at verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 6. God is inviting us into his presence. He says, come, let us sing to the Lord. Verse 2, let us come into his presence. We gather here on Sundays because God has invited us. He has said, come to me. And in saying, come to me, he says, come into my presence. And literally, verse 2, where it says, come into my presence, that literally means, come to my face. When we meet with God on Sunday, we are meeting face-to-face with Him. We are meeting face-to-face with Him. We are having close contact with God. God is inviting us to know His heart every week. He is inviting us to be close. He is telling us that he wants to be intimate. Which might sound a little bit strange. Because we live in a culture that, even though people are incredibly connected all the time, people don't know how to relate to each other. People know how to relate to each other very, very, very little. They struggle just to get to know people. Struggle to have conversations, struggle to engage others, struggle to ask questions. It's a struggle. From being on a college campus, I can tell you that there are tens of thousands of girls all over this, this, this country that have been on date after date after date with young men who can't even have a conversation. It's everywhere. People are connected all the time, but yet they can't really converse. They struggle to communicate, struggle to engage. Surface talk is even difficult sometimes. You know this? And this is not just talking about those who struggle socially. That's a completely separate thing. This is not in any way hating on those who are introverted or who are more quiet at all. This is saying we live in a culture that doesn't really communicate. We live in a culture where people struggle to have meaningful, deep relationships. And oh, by the way, the same time that we live in a culture that is connected all the time but can't really engage one another, everyone desperately wants community. Everyone desperately wants to be known. They want to have friends. They want to have deep relationships. 
but they just don't have the time to commit. Or they don't want to put themselves out there to actually do it, to take the time to do it, to take time to get to know someone. You see, in order for us to have deep relationships with one another, in order for us to have deep relationships with God, what that means is we need to tell each other our desires. We need to tell each other our goals. We need to tell others our fears. We need to tell others our challenges. We need to receive comfort from people. We also need to develop relationships where we can actually vent and where we can receive advice. You see, God is saying, come to my face. God is saying, come and get close to me because I want to hear your desires. I want to know your goals. I want to hear your fears. I want to understand the challenges of your heart because I'm here to communicate my goals. I'm here to communicate my comfort. I'm here to communicate my desires for you. You see, the worship of the living God is far from being superficial. It's actually very, very deep. But unless you're able to open your mind, unless you're willing to open your heart, unless you're willing to sing, to pray, to engage with others, the true worship of the living God will mean absolutely and virtually nothing to you and will probably be very boring. All because it's easier to go someplace where you might be entertained, where someone takes you on some escape, or where they never ever go deep. God says, come to my face because I want you to know my heart. And you can't know that in a surface way. God says, I want to meet with you. In worship, God is saying, I want you to know me. And make no mistake about it, God is after our hearts. That's why we have verses 7 through 11. You see, God is giving himself to us. He's the great God. He's the creator of the world, but it's personal. It's personal. He's our God. We live in his land. His hand is upon us. And he's saying, come to my face. And he's reminding us that I want your heart. That's why he brings this story up from the Old Testament. In verse 7 through 11. That's why he says it explicitly. Don't harden your heart. You know what it's like to be in a relationship in which perhaps you've decided. You've finally decided that it's time for you to open up. And that can take a long time for all sorts of reasons. Burned, hurt, scared. They're all out there. They're all legitimate. But perhaps you've gotten to the point in which you want to open up and you want to talk about your fears or you want to talk about your goals or you want to express how much you need comfort and help or you need advice. Sometimes it takes people years before they get to the point of ever seeking advice. And God says, in coming to me, it's true. I want to know all of this, but don't ever forget I am after your heart and don't harden your heart. Not to Dave. God's saying, don't harden your heart to me. God's saying, don't harden your heart to him. Open your heart. Hear what he has to say. 
He says, don't harden your heart like they did in the Old Testament. Don't harden your heart like my people did, like my congregation did. Because they saw my power, they witnessed it, they experienced it. They saw what I was capable of and what I can do. And yet after a period of time, they just started to complain again. They started to complain. They even thought about killing the man that I have appointed to lead them under me, Moses. So we don't like this guy, we're tired of him, and therefore God took that as a personal attack on him. God said they have observed what I have done, they know what I have done, they've experienced it, and yet they harden their heart. And God was not pleased with that. And so many of them didn't enter the promised land. Only a couple did. You see, what's happening is Psalm 95 doesn't just exist before the coming of Christ. There's another book in the New Testament called Hebrews that picks up Psalm 95 and develops the idea of it. That's why the word today is so powerful. Because getting into the promised land is not, it was not the ultimate hope for those living before the time of the birth of Christ. The promised land was just a picture of a great reality. The rest of being in the promised land and not wandering around in circles year after year after year. The rest of going into a place and develop a land. That wasn't the ultimate goal. You see, the ultimate goal is salvation. And the ultimate rest is found in entrusting ourselves completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ultimately Christ died for our sins. He obeyed in our place and died in our place. Suffered the punishment that we deserve. Not just to forgive us. Not just to give us a standing before God. But that practically means that we can have rest and hope for eternity. What it means is that Christ is Savior. If that's true. It means that we continually open up our hearts to Him. It means that we receive from Him. Oh yes, and that challenges our desire to bow down and kneel and submit and yield, doesn't it? You see, God doesn't want us to harden our hearts. We can harden our hearts in all sorts of ways. Sometimes we harden our hearts because we actually want God to submit to our will. We don't want to submit to His. Sometimes we harden our hearts because we think God is really not good enough for me. I really don't want him because he's really not good enough. I need him to help me a little bit, but that will just get me to get what I want. Other times we harden our hearts to God by simply just not listening, not receiving from him. God says, don't harden your hearts. Don't live as if you need nothing. Don't live as if you can fix everything yourself. Don't harden your heart to God. What's at stake? What's at stake is salvation. What's at stake is rest. What's at stake is eternity. Now let's put all this together. You see, 
worship is more than emotional engagement, isn't it? We can come to God frustrated, angry, all kinds of questions in our minds. We can come before Him joyful with thanksgiving. But worship is more than emotional engagement. Worship is also more than hearing from God. Worship is more than hearing His voice. Worship is more than receiving God's teaching. And worship is more than simply acknowledging our hard hearts, our stubborn hearts, our problems, our sins. Worship is more than confessing. It's more than singing. It's more than praising. It's more than teaching. It's more than confessing. It's actually when all these things begin to work together. One of our forefathers in the faith said, he made this helpful distinction, that there's a difference between knowledge of the truth and the power of truth. There's a difference. There's a difference between knowing truth and the power of the truth. Jonathan Edwards gives this beautiful picture. He says that there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a taste of its sweetness. Does that make sense? There's a difference between knowing in your mind that honey is sweet and then actually tasting it in the same way that there's a difference between knowing God and knowing the power of truth and understanding and experiencing the power of truth. The best way that I can describe this to you perhaps is my wedding ring. Everything that my wedding ring symbolizes and represents. It's one thing to say that I love Jenny. It's one thing to say that I love her, and it's something entirely different to give her a ring, isn't it? Because you see, in giving her a ring and showing her that I love her, it involves my emotions. Yes, I remember the day when I was all nervous going to the jewelry place, trying to figure out what I'm going to buy, what the diamond's going to look like, on and on and on. Yes, I had to do a lot of covert operations to figure out the right size. There was an emotional aspect. I was emotionally involved in what I was doing. I had to purchase this ring that was very emotional. And then I had to give her the ring that was very emotional. And then from my vantage point, once I gave her the ring, it was almost like all my emotions are transferred to her, you know, because she was so excited and all that. You understand, Brett. Maybe that's a dumb guy thing to say. I don't know. I was still emotional, but it just seemed like it was, wasn't a burning a hole in my pocket anymore. It was out of my pocket and onto her finger. But it didn't just involve my emotions. There was an act of the will that I actually had to make the decision to give her the ring. I had to say, I'm going to be this committed to you. I had to say this ring symbolizes that I want to pledge myself to you and you alone. It was an act of my will. And you see, this little ring changes everything about me, doesn't it? Because the rest of my life is different. 
This changes my life. I don't look at my life in the same way that I did anymore. I'm a different person. I'm with someone in a very special, special way. I look at my past different. I look at my present differently. And I look at my future differently because of what this ring means. There's a difference between saying that I love someone, saying that I love Jenny, and then what this ring shows. There's a difference between the knowledge of truth and the power of truth. And what's happening in worship is that all these things are coming together so that the power of truth is changing us. There is an emotional component. There is a volitional component. It's an act of our will such that the entirety of our lives change so that we recognize our past in light of what Christ has done, so that we recognize our future in light of what Christ has done, and our present in light of what Christ has done. You see, worship happens when God summons us to a face-to-face meeting. To a face-to-face encounter. And as we come to that encounter, we praise Him. We sing to Him. We are thankful. Because God is not only a great God, but He is our God. He's my God. We confess our sins and we confess our shortcomings. We give of our money. We give Him our past. We give Him our present. We give Him our future. And guess what? God gives us Himself. He says, I want you to know my heart and I want you to understand my truth and I want you to understand the Gospel. Because it's through the Gospel that we understand His love and we understand His forgiveness and we understand His blessing and we understand His challenging. The challenge that He has upon our lives. We get to see His heart. And we get to entrust ourselves to Him. And our lives are changed forever. You see, worship is not some entertainment thing. It's not some escapism. Worship is formative. We are entrusting ourselves to God as He is giving Himself to us. And that brings us right to the table. See, God is continuing to give Himself to us in the table. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He was with His disciples and they shared a meal together. And it was in the middle of that meal, a very, very old meal, that Jesus was going to give new understanding, fulfilling understanding. He reminded us that on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this represents my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and be thankful. And then he prayed and he had given thanks some more. And he took the cup and he said, This cup represents my blood, which is shed for you, Christ giving himself to you. Take and drink. Remember my death. Remember. Proclaim it. Because I'm not going to enjoy this meal with you again. Until 
I come to see you. And so until I return, y'all celebrate this meal. Because this meal is pointing toward my return. And when I return, we'll celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I will be your host. Those are the words that Jesus used to institute, to set up, to start this supper, this meal. The Bible even adds to this and says that therefore whenever we come together to take this meal, we need to examine ourselves and and strive to discern the Lord's body. You see, God gives us the word preached and he also gives us the visible word through the table. And we're supposed to examine ourselves and consider where do we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you haven't entrusted yourself to him, if you haven't entrusted your heart, your mind, your soul, your emotions, all that you are to the Lord Jesus, then this table isn't for you. This table won't save you. Nothing magical is going to happen. This bread is not going to magically turn into some Heaven, heavenly food, which is going to take you there. It pictures the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one that saves you. He's the one that you have to deal with. He's the one that this table represents. So if you don't know who Jesus is, if you haven't entrusted yourself to him, please don't come. But think about him and think about where you stand with him. But if you know the Lord Jesus and have entrusted yourself to him and know that by his grace you're growing and loving the fact that he is continually giving himself to you, then you need to come to the table. Because this table is a reminder of God's love. This table is his pledge of love to you. This table is how you not only hear Christ, but you actually get to take him in and he's made more and more large in your life because you get to take the bread and the cup and actually eat and drink and feed on Christ. I'll ask the elders to come forward if they would and I'll pray and then we'll distribute these elements and if you would, please hold and we'll take together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the meal. We need to not only hear that the object of our worship should be you, and that in worship what's going on is that you're giving yourself to us and that we are entrusting ourselves to you. Lord, we need to literally take and taste and see that you are good. So we ask that you would use these elements and by the work of your spirit, strengthen us to feed on what Christ has accomplished for us. Increase our faith, increase our trust, continue to magnify Christ in our minds and in our hearts and our lives. For his glory's sake, amen.